Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Glad to see you all this morning. Um, a lighter in-person crowd because we have the storm coming. I know it. Um, and so glad that to see you all here, though. Um, for those of you joining online, Bov sent an email about an hour ago that just noted that we're going to be talking about the tabernacle today. And there is a great kind of little image that describes the tabernacle. Those of you who are here in person are going to get it physically, um, but probably not for like 20 minutes, because I know if we give it to you now, you will be staring at it while we're talking about other things. And so you'll get it in a minute. But those of you who are joining online, if you are on our email list, then you should have received this image and you can look at it as we go through today's um, lesson. And if you're not on our email list, if you have not gotten an email from above, then I encourage you to do that. You can go to stmichael.org rbs Send Bub an email. She will add you to our list to make sure you know exactly what we are doing each week. And a reminder that at stmichael.org rbs, you can see links to our podcasts. We are backloading all of those um, teachings all the way for the last five years. And it's well over 100 hours of teaching. So if you have insomnia, this will help you. You know, you name it. Um, let's open with the prayer and we'll get rolling because we have a lot to cover today. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and the gift of this life. We ask especially for you to fill us with your spirit today. Help us to prepare to ruminate and meditate on the work that you have done throughout time with the people you love, that we can once again take up that mantle and that we can be your hands and feet of love in the world, spreading your good works as far as we can go. Today, we ask your prayers of safety on all those who are being impacted by this winter storm, that those who have been and will be impacted will remain safe. We also ask prayers for those we love who are sick today. We especially lift up Mary Alice and Henry who need your prayers right now. All of this and all of our many blessings we offer up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, I have a lot today, so we're just going to strap in, but I really like questions, so you're gonna, you may have to interrupt me today with the questions, because I'm going to be talking fast. So this is one of those lessons where you don't have to listen to it at one and a half speed, because I'm going to do it naturally at one and a half speed. So here we go. First off, last week, we had a question about the word Jewish. Where does the word Jew or Jewish come from? What is the etymology? And I was just saying a moment ago that the etymology of Jewish, when I first started looking it up, was not satisfying. Because when I looked up, you know, definition of Jewish or history of the word Jewish, I got the people belonging to the Jewish tradition. And I thought, no, 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 you cannot use a word in the definition. That's not how that works. And so I dug around a little bit more, and essentially what I found was that the English word Jew or Jewish originates from the biblical Hebrew word Yehuda, which is actually rooted in the tribe of Judah. And so Jewish is an extension of Judah, the Yehuda of the Hebrew that the Bible was, the Old Testament was originally written in. Judah, Yehuda, actually means celebrate or celebration. And so the Jewish people are really named for the celebration of God. So in their name itself is rooted this idea that we celebrate God's goodness by just simply being God's people. I thought that was kind of interesting. Thank you for the question. I had never, I had never known that. Any follow-up on that? Good. Okay. <laughs> Today we have four specific areas of today's lesson. The first, we're going to finish the end of chapter 23, that whole getting to the promised land bit. Second, we're going to talk about Moses going up on the mountain. Then we're going to talk about the tabernacle, how you build a church. And then last, we're going to talk about the golden calf. We're going to get there because it's so good. All right, so last week, we ended by just touching on the idea of the promised land. Obviously, the arc of this story is really about the Israelites being chosen by God, 
receiving the promise of the land that had begun all the way back with Abraham. So right now, we are in the Sinai Peninsula with the Israelites. They've escaped Egypt. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses. They derive their identity as being the people of Jacob, whose father Isaac, whose father Abraham, received a promise from God of land. So I want to be very clear. The promise that Abraham received from God was really sort of twofold. You're going to have a lot of descendants, and you're going to have really good land. That's basically the promise. Now fast forward 450, 500 plus years, they have yet to receive this land. Now they have had a lot of people. Now remember when they left Egypt, you're talking about 600,000 plus people, and that could be men that could be total people one way or the other it's a lot and so one part of that promise has been fulfilled the other part the land is coming and so in chapter 23 there is a reiteration of the promise that they will actually get the land now i'm gonna try and do this fast because i really want to get to the other stuff the details are a bit thin about how god is going to essentially pass judgment over the people living in the land. Remember last week I talked about how the kind of the ethical, the moral issue here is that the land is not empty. So they're not just walking into empty, unused land. There are tribes of people living in Canaan right now. There is in the history of Judaism, and we'll talk about this a bit more really next year, there is judgment passed on the people who are currently in the land of Canaan. Now, what is that judgment? Why are they judged? Uh, it's a little loose. Some of that judgment anchors back to branching off of the family. So remember, Jacob's a twin. His brother Esau and his descendants all stay in the land. So some of this could essentially be Esau's descendants were not as faithful to their father in the promise that God made to Abraham as Jacob's descendants. And so Jacob's descendants, in a sense, get the land promised to Abraham, whereas Esau's descendants get sent off the land. That's really the best that I can offer you. Depending on the portion of scripture you read, the judgment of the land of Canaan can shift. It might end up being something a little different, but the primary reason that the people are sent off the land is because they're really not the ones who properly inherit the promise God made to Abraham. Does that make sense? I always look at, I try to always look at scripture at, from that kind of moral ethical angle because it's easy for us to say, yay, go Joshua and kill all the people who are there and get the promised land. That's, that's problematic. And so we need to not only say, okay, that's kind of the story, right? It is the story. But to ask the question, what, what did these people do? Because it is not in God's nature to just kill people. We know that because we've seen God's clarity and completeness in Jesus. And so in that story that is told before Jesus, when God does let's be honest here, when God's given, um, I was going to say God's blamed for a lot of things. God's given credit for a lot of stuff. I think a lot of that stuff, like, you know, massacring the Canaanites, is perhaps not really God, but the people who did something that seems kind of terrible, giving it theological consequence and in a sense, defending their actions. And man, people do this all the time. We can look back at anything that people have done that is bad to other people, and how often do people claim some divine intention? We are doing this thing to those people because God gives us permission, or God told us to. How many, anyone involved in a cult here? No? Okay. How many cult leaders have essentially said, God told me to. And then people drink the Kool-Aid and they die, right? It's that kind of stuff that is sort of messed up unless you give it divine purpose. 
And then when you summon God's divinity, all of a sudden crazy stuff seems to have some kind of validity. We can deal with that another day, but this is really where the idea of judgment of the people living on the land begins. That's really all we need to know. We're going to get to the whole how they got into the land another time. But to create a little anchor here, a logic anchor, so that when we begin seeing the slaughtering of apparently innocent people, we have some context around why that might be perceived as okay. Any questions about that? And remember, those of you joining us online, feel free to put those questions in because Bub is maintaining that information and can pass your questions on to me live. Good. It's funny because my regular question askers are not all here. So <laughs> y'all have to, you have to hold the torch and ask a question. Okay. Let's go to the second section for today. 10 minutes. Look at that. I'm a move. Okay. Second section. Moses goes up on the mountain. So here's a note. We're, we're in chapter 24. We're going to begin reading chapter 24 at verse 9. Big picture, Moses has gotten to Sinai with the people. God is up on the mountain. Remember the whole noise and the lightning and the thunder and the shaking up in the mountain? Moses is now going to go up the mountain to go see God. Moses is going to go up the mountain, and from now all the way through chapter 31, Moses is going to be up on the mountain having a chat with God. Moses is by himself. And so the people will not be privy to what is happening up on the mountain with Moses. And if you've ever met another person, you know that people get bored fast. So post, after chapter 31, we see what boredom gets them. But for now, we're going to talk about Moses up on the mountain. Chapter 24, verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also they beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. Just a quick note. Didn't he already go up the mountain? We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 14, To the elders he had said, Wait for us here until we come to you again, for Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll pause there. For any of you paying attention you might notice you kind of got the same story three times. Did you see the redundancy here and the looping of what we are saying? This is a great little example. The reason I read just those verses is this is a perfect example of the way in which multiple different oral tradition stories are being smashed together. Rather than telling one complete story and then telling a second complete story of the same stuff, people are kind of picking a few sentences here and picking a few sentences there. And so we get a little bit of a contradiction. It's not because the people are wrong. It's just that certain stories over time developed in a certain way. Um, our, our commentary that we have had next to this this whole time talks about needing a continuity agent here in this story. If you all are familiar, when movies are made or TV shows are shot, that sort of stuff, even novels are written, there's a person who is in a sense charged with continuity so that you don't get this moment where you do a thing again. Or maybe you do something after the thing you were talking about happened and you get this odd moment. We've probably all seen at least one movie where we think, what just happened? 
how did that happen before the other thing happened? The continuity guy messed up. And so in a sense, there is no continuity guy in the construction of this story. So we get Moses, Aaron, Nahab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders going up and having a talk with God in the first few verses. Then it's as if that never happened. And now Moses is saying, come on up to the mountain with me. And you're going to wait here and we're going to go get the tablets of stone. Isn't that great? And then it's as if maybe that didn't happen. And Moses going up the mountain into the cloud and seeing the fire. So we, we kind of have Moses going up the mountain three times. He probably only went up once. And so just choose the ver version you like. The most, <laughs> the most continuous version of the story really looks like one, either the second or third. Moses is up there by himself. That is the most important thing for us to note. Even though there's a little bit of Moses going up with 70 plus people, the rest of the story that we're going to get to doesn't have anyone up there with Moses. So it's most likely that the best continuous storyline here is that Moses went up by himself. But maybe he left a few people, you know, if you think of like when people climb Everest, you go to one base camp, then you go to another camp, and then you go up a little higher. It might be easy for us to imagine that Moses started with a big group of people. And then at some point said, now most of you stay here. And then he kept going with a couple people, at least Joshua. And then he turns to Joshua at some point and says, you see that big ball of fire? I'm going to go in that, but not you. You stay here. When we get to the golden calf scene in, verse, in chapters 30 plus, Joshua has been by himself between the people at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses up at the top. So we're going to go with that as being the most continuous storyline. So Aaron stays at kind of the bottom with the people, and he says, if you've got some problems, go talk to Aaron. So Aaron's kind of number two. He's going to solve your problems. Moses goes up with Joshua, tells Joshua at some point, stop. I'm going to keep going. But he's going into this devouring fire at the top of the mountain. Moses entered the cloud and stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine being the people at the bottom of the mountain? And you're sort of watching the little dots of the people climb up the mountain. So you can kind of see Moses. But up at the top of the mountain, there is devouring fire, lightning and thunder and clouds. And Moses goes into that. That is where we are 40 days later when the people go off the rails. I can understand why they may have said, Moses is gone. I mean, he's not coming back. We're going to get there. We're not quite there yet. Because now we're going to look at Moses there on the mountain, getting all kinds of good stuff from God. So that's the end of the second section. Any questions about Moses getting up on the mountain? Above, get ready. Okay, good. Ha! 20 minutes. So good. I never move this fast. Okay. Bub is now passing out a little image of the tabernacle. For those of you online who received Bub's email, pull up that PDF so you can look at this with us. When Moses is up on the mountain, most of the ink about Moses being up on the mountain is actually about how to build a sanctuary, how to build what will be the tent, the Holy of Holies, where God will be present with the Israelites as they travel through the wilderness. It's a lot of words. We're not going to read most of them. This image is definitely worth the thousand words that we will not read together. It will be so much more helpful than just continuing through. So, we're going to start at, ver at chapter 25. Just don't resist the image for 90 seconds. We're going to read chapter 25. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to take for me an offering. From all whose hearts prompt them to give, you shall receive the offering for me. This is the offering that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and crimson yarns of fine linen, 
goat's hair, tanned ram skins, fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and gems to be set in the ephod and for the breastplate, and have them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. We'll pause there. God is calling the people together to share what they have to build a church, a sanctuary, a dwelling place for God. What is interesting here is you might say to yourself, huh, how do the slaves have gold and silver and bronze and gemstones and onyx and all this other stuff. They took it from Egypt. Remember before they left Egypt, they just took a bunch of stuff. Pharaoh said, take whatever you want, just go. And so, like any kind of smart person, they kind of, you know, went to the jewelry counter and they just kind of went, you know, and took all this stuff. So they've been hauling a bunch of fine things all the way over to Mount Sinai. Many of those fine things are Egyptian. It's not as if they have great-grandmother's silver that they brought with them. That's, that's not what this is. This is Egyptian stuff that is not heirloom. It's not family things. It's just things they grabbed on their way out of Egypt. And so what God is saying to Moses here is, take an offering from the people. Get these specific things that we need to build the sanctuary and then combine it all together and make something great. It is not unlike when we all make offerings to build our church community. That's really what this is. I have, I had this idea um, back in my former parish where we could all submit silver to be cast together to make an altar cross. Prior to that, in Birmingham, there was this idea that we could all bring together blue, what is it, you know that kind of um, blue china that people have had over years and years and years, and somebody's got chip pieces or whatever. We would all bring together some kind of blue china that artists would take, break it up, and then do a mosaic on a floor outside of a labyrinth with the pieces that we come from us. There's something so powerful about actually giving a tangible thing that then comes together and is shared together and to make something beautiful. We don't often do that. We often give money, time and talent and treasure. We don't often give earrings or bracelets or jewels or silver and gold. Although maybe we should do something like that. That would kind of be fun to do an art piece with all of our stuff. Um, we all have broken things at home, you know, like that necklace that will not be repaired or that silver piece that nobody uses anymore. It would kind of be fun to do that. So mental note. Okay. Sandra volunteered to coordinate that. Um, so here we have kind of the root of our own stewardship. We give of our individual belongings, whether that's time, talent, or treasure, and then as a community, as a faith community, in faithfulness to God, we pool all of that together and do something bigger than any one of us could do on our own. That's essentially what is happening here. Now we get super specific about how to do that, but the spirit of what is happening now, in these chapters, is not unlike the spirit of us pooling our resources together to do something big. Let's keep going. Oh, you know what? Before we keep going, just, I'm sorry, one more idea. God has chosen the Israelite people, and up to this point, the Israelites have not been a people of one place. They've been moving around. Abraham moved around. Jacob moved around. Joseph went all the way into Egypt. Now they've come out into Sinai. They're going to be wandering the wilderness for a bit. 
before they actually get into the promised land. But even when they get into the promised land, they're going to live generations in the promised land without really coming together in one place. That one place moment does not happen until we get to David. David brings the ark, which we'll talk about in a second, into Jerusalem, and then Solomon builds a temple. Until then, this tent that is being built is essentially going to be God's dwelling place. The sanctuary, tabernacle. Tabernacle, that word literally means dwelling place. What is happening here is that God is getting a home. And God's home will be there with the people in a very specific way. Until, of course, the temple itself is built. And so what we see here on your handout with the tabernacle is this is essentially the way that the temple itself will be set up one day. Now let's look at this image. Before we get into all the specifics, this image essentially sets up a large area outside a big tent, and it's all sacred space. We're going to talk about each little component of this, but I wanted to just note that it's kind of like a junior soccer field. I mean, think of it being about that big. Probably not too dissimilar to the soccer field that we had on the west side of the St. Michael property. So it's not small, but it's not enormous. It's big enough that you could just walk across it in, you know, less than a minute. So. Now let's go into the details. Not all of them, some of them. I just want you to see how detailed it actually is. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so on the image that you're holding, in the upper right, you see there's an American football field. Below it is the actual size of the tabernacle space. So as you can see, you're talking about a third the size of a football field. So it's not even as big as a, an adult-sized soccer field. That's why I said, like, junior. We're talking about, like, the soccer fields that third graders play on. Right, right. So you're talking, like, third-grade soccer field. Okay. Yes. So where do they worship? They will worship in the tent, and I promise we're going to get there. I'm going to talk all about, this is kind of fascinating stuff, and this will help us know next year when we talk about David and then a little bit about Solomon, what they are building in Jerusalem is a more permanent version of this, but this is where they get all of the details. So let's look at chapter 25. Yes. I love it. Go ahead. Oh, interesting. Okay, so the question is, do we have essentially archaeological evidence that of stones or other things that don't kind of break down over time um, that have been found there? I will tell you, I do not know, and I will look that up because I, I do not know. There, there are a number of archaeological things I will tell you, like the walls of Jericho, for example. Like, that's not been discovered. Um, now, somebody's going to tell you that they have. Many of you will be able to Google this, and you're going to send me an article that tells me that the walls of Jericho were found, and I will tell you that that's not really. It's sort of like the ark that was found in the mountaintop. Y'all, I mean, it, I, am, I am an intellectual snob. I'm going to tell you that. And so don't send me an article that you have not chased the footnotes to find out who actually said this stuff because most of what you read online is not true. So don't just Google and find a one thing that tells you what you want to hear and then think that that is true. That is the big problem right now in our world, and I will resist going down that rabbit trail. Um, but find out who is saying the thing, 
and how solid, how reliable those people are before you believe stuff. Okay, chapter 25, verse 10. We're just going to start busting through a few of these verses. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. It shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half tall. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside you shall overlay it and you shall make a molding of gold upon it all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark by which to carry the ark. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark that should not be taken from it. You shall put it into the ark and that I shall give you. Okay, all of that is to say, we're gonna pause there. It's very detailed. We get super specific specifications. So first off, they are building what has always been called an ark. For us in English, most of us think ark, think boat. It is not a boat. This is a chest. This is like a big hope chest. Do y'all have ever had those, right? That's a thing, right? Are y'all Texans and not Southern? Is that, yes, we got hope chests? Good, okay, thanks. Um, I grew up with women who had hope chests. And what were the hope chests? Is that like where you put all the things you hope for in the future? That's like your wedding dress and your baby rattles or something like that. What a weird thing. Okay, so this is like a big chest. But we will find out later that it's, you can't touch it. And so the only way it can be carried is by the poles that are attached by four rings. So if you think of those, you know, this old school, like queens being carried in chairs with men, like with the poles on their shoulders, that's very much this. Or you can imagine like pallbearers at a funeral. This is meant to be poles riding down the side of a big chest, and then people would lift the chest from the poles. They would not touch the chest itself. We will find out later, you touch the chest, you die. That's not this year. So the ark is a big box, and in this big box is going to go the super special stuff. And super special stuff, meaning the tablets on which the commandments are written. So remember, God's gonna give us tablets with the commandments on them. And actually, we're gonna have a few versions of them because the first set don't make it. And so we're gonna get stones with the commandments and that's the promise. That's the covenant between God and the people. And that's super special. They will be put in this box and this box will be decorated beautifully. Lots of gold, lots of gold. And on top of this box, we're going to get a chair and some angels. It's gonna be quite fancy. And so let's continue on. I should note that a cubit is a clear measurement. It's about half a meter, half a yard, half a meter. So when we're talking about one and a half cubits, two cubits, that kind of stuff, think about a cubit is about a half a meter. So two cubits is about a meter. So that gives you the sense of, it's not huge, but it's a big chest. It's the thing that, you know, lucky kids get to take to summer camp. Like it's a, you know, big chest. Okay, let's keep going, verse 17. Then you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half, shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold. You shall make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end and one cherub at the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one to another, the faces of the cherubim shall be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the covenant that I shall give you. Okay. Things are said many times. On top of this box, we're going to get one big chunky gold piece that is a chair with two angels with big wings facing the chair. 
This is not cherubim. Do not think fat babies. That is not what this is. These are winged angel warriors. And so these angels will be fierce looking with big wings that rise up over and then a mercy seat in the middle. So what is a mercy seat? Essentially, all this is, if you look at the Hebrew, is it's a place of forgiveness. So think about the theology of what's going on here. God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, renewed a promise, and part of that renewal of a promise is the Ten Commandments. It's giving people the rails or the boundaries around how they should be in the world in order to maintain a good relationship with God. Now, are people perfect? No. Will they screw up? Absolutely. And when they do, immediately on top of what, rec what represents God's promise is a seat of reconciliation. It's a seat of forgiveness. And so God is physically manifesting the promise, the boundaries that should hold us in good relationship and knowing that we will every day push and break those boundaries. And so right on top of that, he puts a seat that, rec that represents mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation. So God is in this one piece really defining his character, boundaries and constant mercy and forgiveness all together. I kind of think that's beautiful. Okay. Mm -mm -mm. Now, let's talk about this image that you have in front of you. I am not going to read another verse from the Bible for the next few chapters because it's just too much detail. It's more of what I have just read. Every little thing gets a whole paragraph describing it very specifically. But I want to talk about each of the pieces of furniture, essentially, kind of, that will be represented in the tabernacle. Take out your sheet. On the right, you see the entrance curtain. That will be established as a boundary around the sacred space. You go into the entrance curtain, and then you get to three specific pieces that are supposed to be in this tabernacle. The first are slaughter tables. Man, that sounds like our church, doesn't it? The tables are meant to be where animals are sacrificed. So it is, it is what it is. These are tables in which animals will be cut, bled out, and prepared for the brass altar, brazen brass. The brass altar, which is essentially where the animals are burned. They're you know, dead bodies are offered as a burnt sacrifice. And then as you continue to move left, you get to the brass laver, the brass lavabo. It is a bowl where you are cleansed. And so we still have this kind of thing. We have an altar, right? And if you notice just before the celebrant steps behind the altar to do the Eucharistic prayer, there are two acolytes that stand off to the side, one with a little cruet of water and one holding a bowl. It is a lavabo bowl. This laver is a lavabo. It's the same thing where you are cleansed in order to then do something sacred. And so before our celebrants go and celebrate the Eucharist, actually pray over, the bread and the wine, there is this symbolic cleansing where water is poured over their hands into this bowl. That's essentially what's happening here. Because if you imagine slaughtering and burning animal carcasses, not perfectly clean. And so before one steps into the temple, which is on the farthest left, you got to clean yourself. And so that brass bowl is meant to be a sacred cleansing prior to going to worship. This is very common in ancient Near East religious traditions. You've likely seen, so when we, if you go to Israel today, 
you will see that there is a bank of pools, essentially, next to the temple where Jewish worshipers would go and cleanse themselves physically with water in order to go into the temple clean. There are actually paths. You walk a certain path if you have not been cleansed. You walk a different path once you have been cleansed because you can't walk on the same dirty path or you're no longer clean. We get this same idea in baptism. That's what baptism is. In this bowl of holy water, we are cleansed. Muslims do the same thing. Before they go and they pray in a mosque, they go and they wash. They wash their face, their head, their hands, their feet. This is very common, this symbolic cleansing in order to then go and be present with God. And that's what we see here in the tabernacle. Now let's keep going left. Now we are in the actual tent. This temple tent has a lot of specificities. Inside the tent, we have a number of components. We have an outer veil or curtain. We have a table for the bread of the presence. Think communion bread. There's a lampstand, which is really a menorah. There's an altar of incense. Then there is the veil covering the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies is the ark. So I know it's tiny on this image, but the numbers there correspond to the left, and you can kind of see which component is where. This is very specifically set up. And most people would never go inside the tent itself. The tent will be reserved for the priests. And the farther in you go in the tent, the higher caste of priest you have to be. So the Holy of Holies is the high priest space. The not high priests go in the outer. So that's where you've got the two veils. Outer veil, really priests. Inner veil, high priests. So there is a hierarchy all the way through. You've got to be clean to even enter the curtain that is the entrance curtain all the way to the right. Then you've got to be cleaner to get into the tent. And then you've got to be the cleanest to go into the Holy of Holies. Questions about this? Yeah, so what is interesting about about this structure, what I, what I assume would, I hope would strike you as you look at this, the majority of the space of the tabernacle is open air. That will also be true of the temple in Jerusalem. The majority of the temple space up on the Temple Mount is open air. And it's, depending on the time period, this, this shifts over time, people are, have to be more or less clean to be in that space. You know, rules get tighter and looser, you know, depending on the, the phase. When Jesus goes into the temple and overturns the tables of the money changers, I think I've said this in here before, but I, and I'm, I'm almost positive I've preached about it. Who are the money changers? They're not inherently evil people. They are essentially the 7-Eleven of the first century because it's a convenience store. That's, all, that's what they have set up here. People travel from hundreds of miles away for festival days to go to the temple to sacrifice and to worship. It is not easy to drag a little goat hundreds of miles with you to sacrifice at the temple. What is easier? Just bring some money and buy a goat when you get to Jerusalem. So any good entrepreneur decided, you know what? If we put the doves and the goats and the lambs and everything right here, right at the temple gate, we're going to make bank because I will pay a lot more for a dove at the temple to not have to carry the dove for a month from wherever I'm going. And so that's why when you go to 7-Eleven, you are not spending the least amount on anything. It is a convenience store. They will charge you more because it's super convenient. 
What'd you say? Ticket scalpers right here at the temple. No, um, but that's, that's really what the money changers are doing. They're just selling stuff. They're trying to facilitate people's worship. Now, granted, that does not sound quite as holy as it can. They're taking advantage of people's desire for convenience. So they're profiting on the animals. And essentially, Jesus walks in, overturns the tables, and says, this is not what you are supposed to be doing when you worship God. And for him, it's multi-layer. One thing is, making godly worship convenient is not the point. Making things most convenient? No, that's why I say all the time, I hope you hear me all the time say, Jesus is inconvenient. Yep. And that is kind of annoying to us because we really like convenience. We would really like things to be the easiest way possible. And I kind of think a good purpose of church in the 21st century, when we are kind of wealthy, well-educated Americans, is to actually not always be convenient. So we are reminded that God is not on our schedule the way we want all the time. That's just not the best of things. And so Jesus goes in, overturns those tables, kind of because it's not supposed to be convenient. But the other thing is, God doesn't need this. It was never really the point. The point was that we give of ourselves in humility all the time. You know, if you cut the neck of a goat just the right way, well, no, that's dumb. It just, that, that gets beyond the point of what sacrifice in relationship is all about. I'm sorry, I'll stop preaching. Um, okay, so other questions about what you see here? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so. I So what is your question? Yeah. So uh, comment was, I always thought God didn't want sacrifices, and so do they add this in, that sort of stuff? Okay. Remember, this is a story being told of people who are faithfully trying to describe their history and relationship with God. There is not a court reporter recording conversations between Moses and God for posterity. This is hundreds of years, hundreds of years. Think about if you had to tell me a story that is from your sixth great-grandmother, how accurate is that story going to be? And that's not, that's not 500 years. That's a couple hundred years. And so when we think about the scope at which we are talking about stories being written down that would be like stories from before the Europeans came to America. That, that is how old we are talking. So that's why we get things like George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and did not tell a lie, which is completely made up. That, that never happened. But someone thought that sure sounded good, made George look good, created some identity for the Americans, wonderful. It's not that the story isn't true, it's that it's not historic. And so what we get here is true stories of stuff that kinda happened, but it's always put in the lens of oral tradition. So did God say, go sacrifice goats? If you've been sacrificing goats for 400 years, it sure be nice to say God said that. Right. What I don't want it to be, did they write it in to make themselves feel better? What I, I don't want this to sound cheap or ignorant or malicious or any of those things. It's none of those things. It is simply defining God in a way that makes sense to the people who are trying to be faithful. Ah, you're tempting me. Um, I cannot resist. Okay, so we are, faithful people do this all the time. Christians in America 
by and large have made Jesus the kind of savior or divine presence, whatever you want to say, that makes sense to Americans. And part of what I love about the Episcopal Church is that we try, try, and always fail, but we try to get at the best, purest Jesus we can get to and not add in all of the stuff that we think is important. Much of culture war stuff that we are experiencing right now is because people are trying, and sometimes very effectively, to make Jesus the person they want him to be because they want certain things. They want to achieve certain things, be certain ways, limit certain things. And so they go back and they say, well, God does X, which is almost always from the Old Testament, by the way. Um, but it's sometimes you can take a little bit of a nugget of a moment that Jesus did a thing and then say, well, then Jesus thought all of this. And that is so lazy. I would say that there are lots of preachers today who are malicious when they do that. I would love to say that they're not, but I think they are. I think they take an idea, a little moment, a half verse, and then they extrapolate an entire way of being based on that half verse and ignore chapters and chapters of other things because they actually want, they know the answer they want. And so they're going to find the five words that allow them to get the answer they want. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is a far more innocent attempt at being good, faithful people of God. But I think your point is well made. We certainly, as followers of Jesus, figured out pretty quickly we don't need to sacrifice animals. That was that's basically never a Christian thing. Interestingly, though, one of the reasons why early Christians stopped sacrificing animals is because they saw Jesus as having been sacrificed once for all. Now, I'm not being baited into atonement th theology right now, but we do have this sense for hundreds of years that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. We do not need to do that anymore. We are saved, we are cleansed because Jesus bled. It's a little, that can be a little problematic. Not untrue, but it needs more nuance than that. For God wanting Jesus' blood in order to save us does not completely work for me. And so we can talk about that another day. Um, it happened. Jesus was crucified. Yes, got it. But it can be more nuanced and more complex than that. Okay. What? I was doing so good. Okay. Got to move. Um, keep your questions about the tabernacle. We can totally come back to this. No problem. I do really want to do the golden calf, and so I'm going to do it really fast. Here we go. You got to flip. Chapter 32. We're going to jump. So now, as I said a few minutes ago, Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days, and the people are looking up at the mountain, and it's on fire, and there's lightning and thunder and clouds, and it's crazy looking. And he's been up there. How in the world can he still be alive? It's been 40 days. He must have died. How long are we going to wait? And so the people start to get antsy and itchy, and they are bored, and they kind of want to do a thing. And so we get to chapter 32. Here we go. It's the good stuff. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel.
and we'll pause there. I want to start by saying it would be very easy for us to condemn Aaron and all of these Israelites for doing this stuff. I am way more sympathetic than that. They've been sitting around at the bottom of the mountain waiting for Moses. It has been more than a month that they have been waiting for this man. What in the world is happening up on that mountain? Everything we have gone through over these last few chapters could have been done in a few hours. And so month plus? So they say, we got to do something. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. We got to do something. And so all of that gold, remember that God was saying to use for the tabernacle, they're pooling all that gold together and they're going to make a calf. Now, these people have been in Egypt for four centuries. Egypt, more than almost anyone else, was brilliant at creating statues and images of gods. And so the Israelites have been inundated with this kind of way of being. Interestingly, in Hebrew, there is no difference between the capital God and lowercase gods. Same words. So typically, context allows us to know whether they're talking about capital God or just lowercase gods in their conversations. But here, it's a little gray. Why I say that is because I think we can, we can absolutely read this uncharitably. Of course we can. Or we can kind of give Aaron and the people the benefit of the doubt that they're not terrible, they're just human. And what we see when we try to read this a bit charitably is that they're actually trying to do the stuff they know. They're not somehow going over and against God that has delivered them from Egypt. They're kind of wanting to get on with it and create some religious traditions of their own. So they put the gold together and they build a calf and then Aaron builds an altar and then look what Aaron says in verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a festival to Yahweh. That is what the Hebrew says. Aaron is not forgetting about Yahweh. Aaron is forgetting how Yahweh said to behave. So what we are really seeing here is forgetting the commandments. First commandment, you shall have no other gods but me. Second commandment, you shall not make idols. Aaron and the people have simply forgotten that. But it does seem like they are actually trying to kind of be worshipful. They've made something beautiful. They've made a calf that in a sense represents the kind of offerings that they would ultimately wish to make to God, right? It's the goat, the sheep, the dove, the calf. It's all that stuff. And so this golden calf, beautiful golden calf, gets an altar and they're going to have a festival to Yahweh. They're doing it wrong, but kind of for the right reasons. And so I think we can be a bit generous here and not immediately condemn them like a bunch of evil people. I am out of time. I am so sad. Okay. I will leave you with this. All this stuff hits the fan in a minute, okay? We, we've had this lovely time. Moses has been up on the mountain. It's kumbaya with God, getting all the measurements for the ark and the curtain and the stuff. And I can imagine Moses is just having a blast, right? There with God, hearing all the stuff. Yeah, God, I'm in. And then on the bottom of the mountain, they're getting so bored. And they can only twiddle their thumbs for so long. And so then they finally say, let's have a party. Let's have a party, a celebration, a celebration for Yahweh. And we're going to do that by building a statue and an altar, and we're going to eat and we're going to drink and be merry. It's going to be great. It kind of sounds Episcopalian, doesn't it? So <laughs> these two different threads are happening at the same time. Moses is having this literal mountaintop experience with God, and then the people are down there at the bottom getting bored but wanting to do something, and so they're preparing for a big party for Yahweh. I'm done. So next week, we're going to see how those two different threads, those two different paths collide because, oops, 
Moses gets mad. And it's the stuff we don't read in church, and it's good. So next week, we're going to see what happens when Moses and God see what the people are doing at the bottom of the mountain. Hey, be safe. Stay warm. I'll see you all next week. Bye.